This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The facts that will be presented are true. Scientists representing the world's foremost research centers took part in the examination of the evidence. And welcome to Paranormal Guys. I'm Chris. And I'm Chad. And together, we are Wild Stallion. Rock on. Party on, Chad. Party on. Wait. No, I'm, I'm mixing. It's Wayne's World. I'm mixing fake bandish things. You have to be excellent to each other. Be excellent to one another. So crates. So crates. Yeah. Oh, so how's it going, Chad? Oh, it's going, sir. How's it going with you? Oh, you know. I Oh, one thing I do want to bring up. I need to apologize to everybody out there. They can't smell that. <laughs> no, it's not that. Oh. Well, the other day I was kind of re- reviewing some stuff on the website, and I noticed in the show notes for our last show, there was a misspelling. Oh. And it was one of, it wasn't really a misspelling. It was, I meant to put here, as in with your ears, but it, I put H-E-R-E. That's sad. That, and it hurt my OCD very bad. Wow. I don't know. Huh. I mean, I, I wouldn't blame people if they quit listening to the show for that. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It hurt me. I, it's been corrected. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> Almost immediately. I'm glad. Did you cut yourself? No, but oh. I did. What What's the thing? What do they call it? Uh, self-flagellation. That's just where you fart on yourself? <laughs> I think it's self-flagellation. Oh. No, if you watch, uh, what's that one uh, movie with Tom Hanks and the albino? Oh, yeah, I know the one you're talking about. Forrest Gump. Yeah, it, it, I think there's some in that. Or Powder. Which one was it? He's on that island with Wilson? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he beats Wilson with a stick? Well, that, that wouldn't be self-flagellation. Oh. Poor Wilson. I know. He got beat, cut open, bloody palm print. Then he just threw him out in the ocean yeah. for the whales. That's pretty bad. Anyway, <laughs> we digress greatly. Mm-hmm. So, Chadwick. Yes, sir. Moving right on into the show. Mm-hmm. Do you have any news for us this week? I do have some news. Are you interested in some news? I am. I always love news. You love stories. I love news. I, that's true. Uh, well, let's start out with something rare, mysterious, alien. Who knows? But there's a creature that washed ashore on a Mexican beach. Ooh. The, or, aye, aye, aye. Uh, the body of the creature was said to be in such bad state of decomposition, experts could not determine what it was, according to local Mexican media outlet BCS. However, its haunting appearance has baffled people around the world who claim the specimen could even be a humanoid fish or some form of alien creature. The as yet unidentifiable specimen was found on the rocks of Cerevo Island near the Mexican <laughs> coast of Baja, California, sir. Arriba. Mm-hmm. The fisherman who filmed the footage of the creature can be heard saying, This animal is the devil, or a mermaid. <laughs> who knows which one? It has a tail, hair, mouth like a human, but two horns. This is a rare animal. In the background of the video, one of his colleagues insists the animal was half-human, half-fish creature, not unlike a mermaid. If they uh, turn this into a movie, I hope uh, Antonio Banderas isn't cast in the lead. He probably will. Yeah. It'll be something like Mysterious Hailing an Animal in Boots. It is the devil. You like my boots. You'll see them. They are beautiful. <laughs> Local museum staff claim the carcass was a beaked whale. 
Experts and social media users have suggested a wide range of possible identities for the mysterious creature. None have yet been confirmed. Around 14,000 people have watched reports of the creature's discovery on Facebook and YouTube in recent days. Locals in the area told BCS that, judging by the horns, the creature could be a feral goat introduced to the area years ago. Feral goat? Well, that's what they said. I don't know what he was doing <laughs> swimming around the ocean. Viewers on Facebook claim the creature could be a sea iguana or a dolphin, while others push forward theories of an alien who could not handle the heat in atmosphere. I guess there's just too much partying going on. I couldn't handle the heat. Staff at the local whale and marine sciences museum near the site said the creature was most likely a beaked whale. However, these are not usually found in the Gulf of California. Official environmental authorities have yet to comment on the creature as the social media frenzy continues. Beaked whale? What the heck's a beaked whale? Well, I looked at a picture. It kind of just looks like a, a whale with a dolphin nose, sort of. Oh, yeah. I, you know what that is. What? I bet that's something that came around about the early 40s. Oh, yeah? At, to me, that has all the makings of crazy Nazi scientist uh, animal hybridization. It could be. You know, Chad, if we cross the veil with the parrot... We get the beaked whale that can ask for crackers. This is true. Yeah. Yeah. Whale, you want the cracker? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. I saw the picture off the uh, the story, and I really do think marine iguana. Marine iguana in a toupee? Yeah. Because of the hair? Well, he probably picked up the hair floating through the water. Think so? Yeah, you know. There's all kinds of crap floating in the ocean. That's true. <laughs> all right. Well. What do you got? I have one here mm-hmm. about aliens. Aliens? Perhaps. Alien civilizations, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Yeah. It's about the wow signal, Chad. The hell you say. <laughs> I do. This is a new wow signal. And it's from KIC8462852. Okay. Providing the best evidence we've had of an alien intelligence since the WOW signal, KIC 8462852, which I will henceforth call Kick, is a star with very unusual properties. As a rule of thumb, planetary bodies passing in front of stars cause at most a 1% drop in visible light using the Kepler Observatory. Kick, on the other hand, has been periodically dropping by over 20%. Why? That's the mystery. And it was discovered initially by scientists poring over the data, trying to determine if the computer algorithms had missed something. But what does it mean? Hmm. The website, planethunters.org, was set up as part of a citizen science portal and launched by Deborah Fisher out of Yale University, allowing interested users to visually analyze data from the Kepler mission to find planets. The website exploits the fact that humans are better at recognizing visual patterns than machines, and it uses crowdsourcing to speed up the process. Their website displays an image of data by Kepler and asks human users to look at the data and note how the brightness of the star changes over time. They initially received quite a bit of skeptical remarks from people who believed that computers would be better able to find all fluctuations, but the Planet Hunters team has turned out to be right. To date, over 12 million light fluctuation observations have been analyzed, and in October of 2012, it was announced that 34 planets had been found. One of the stars in particular, which had been analyzed and flagged as quite unusual, was Kick, (laughs) otherwise known as the WTF star. No, really. Or Tabby's star. On this particular star, which is located 1,500 light years from Earth, and as such, what we witnessed happened 1,500 years ago, Mm-hmm. highly unusual light fluctuations were noted. So in September of 2015, a paper appeared on arxiv.org describing the data along with possible interpretations for the bizarre patterns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Many additional hypotheses arose to explain the unusual fluctuations, such as being caused by a swarm of dusty comets in a strange orbit or other small masses in a tight formation. But the explanation which obtained the most interest in the press was that it could be caused by some sort of Dyson sphere set up by a mega-civilization to harvest the star's energy. It never loses suction. It doesn't. It's awesome. And expensive. 
observations made of the star showed small, frequent, but sporadic and non-periodic dips in its brightness, along with two very large dips seemingly occurring 750 days apart. To draw a comparison concerning how much of a dip in brightness this is, if you use Jupiter orbiting the Sun as an example, Jupiter would only obscure 1% of the light, since KIC 8462852 has fluctuations of up to 22%, the structure would have to be much bigger. Unicron. Obelisk, look! It's Unicron! <laughs> the SETI Institute was contacted and asked to provide some analysis, and on 19th of October 2015, they began a two-week survey to look for radio emissions. But they stated they had found no evidence coming from the star system to indicate intelligence. A statement on March 4th by a SETI astronomer seemed to indicate, however, that much more resources would be used to observe the star in the near future. So it seems like they were like, no, there's nothing there, but we're going to start looking at it. Look at the way, because it's heading this That's way. That's right. Planet X. You know what it is. What? Gallifrey. Gallifrey? Mm -hmm. Don't even know what that is, do you? The wizard from Lord of the Rings? Oh, never mind. Oh. That was Gandalf. SETI overall has adopted the assumptions involving the Dyson Sphere and are now looking for infrared heavy signatures. Fermilab already did this once in the past and had an ongoing survey which analyzed data from the infrared astronomical satellite that ceased operation in 1983. They stated 17 potential ambiguous candidates were identified from that mission's data set but to identify a Dyson Sphere from natural sources would require improved techniques. Really? Yeah. So, got a big star, light dips every now and then, mm -hmm. more than it's supposed to in a normal star. So, automatically, mega alien civilization, Dyson Sphere. Probably. I, I mean, I think so. Just with a big dome built around it. And... I wonder if it could. it is, you know, Unicron is a good idea. And so maybe when you get the big dip is when he transforms into robot mode and Could he be. stretches out and like He's blocks all the sun. eating little planets like Brrr. snow cone. <laughs> Does he put him in a little, little paper comet? It's good. <laughs> little cosmic cherry on it. Does he, does he do a big soliloquy when he eats it about how, like, it's his destiny? And he does. He's like, Rich, I am I considered eating all the comets in this area, especially those two over there, because they look the tastiest, and that's my destiny, and I'll do it. I'll do it right now, and he won't stop me. And then he gets a stomach ache later, and he has to quit eating them. And, and right before, like, his head it blows off his body, he goes into almost a chant. Destiny! Pretty, pretty much. I mean, you know. Destiny! It's for me! Destiny! <laughs> Brain freeze. Isn't that what Gene Wilder does? It oh my, what was that? Ghost. I believe Paranormal Guys just witnessed its first paranormal activity in the middle of a show. I think there's some uh, sort of poltergeist activity going on. The hell is, is that? Is that coming from down here? It sounds like it's down here in the other room. <laughs> Let me go check. Hold Why don't on. you go check that? Oh, no, I'm leaving this recording while I do that. So I'll wait. In I'll case wait right here. It might record my death. It's true. Which room did it sound like it's coming from? It sounded like it came from, I don't know, oh, just I'm in there. Going over there. Be careful. Go to the bathroom before you go in there. I'm taking my flashlight. Okay. That sounds like it's about the size of a wildebeest. I just watched Troll last night again. <laughs> you go to turn into a giant green bean? No, the Norway one. Oh, the, the Troll, troll Hunters? Oh, I thought you were talking about where he's in the apartment building with Sonny Bono. I don't think he's coming back. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's not coming back. <laughs> Talking mongoose. He's going to push the refrigerator in front of these doors. <laughs> All right, so... Uh-huh. Guess you shouldn't have stepped on that centipede earlier. Its mother was in there. So anyway, where yes, were we? <laughs> Just got done with your story before Death Monster. Oh, we were talking about Unicron. Yeah. yeah, Unicron. Snowballs. So, do you have uh, another uh, story there for us, Chadwick? I do. All you know, right. one thing we've all been looking for is evidence of Bigfoot, besides photos. So, I found where a man claims to have found Bigfoot's skull. Do you believe that? His skull, you say? His skull. It says, um, 
Torin Halsey, Times Record News. Todd May holds a rock-like object that he believes is a petrified fossil of the head of a Sasquatch, also known as Bigfoot. May was hunting for fossils in Ogden Canyon of Ogden, Utah, when he saw the head-shaped specimen. May also says he has spotted Bigfoot on two occasions, so he knows what Bigfoot's head is shaped like. Well, that's good. I mean, that would be your first step in identifying a Bigfoot skull. This is true. While on a hike near his home in Ogden, Utah, Todd May felt himself drawn towards something. I would go out there often and find things, fossils, rocks. I looked around for about half an hour, then I saw it. Hold on a minute. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Uh-oh. Uh, I don't know. I've never heard this man actually speak, but I'm going to do this. Oh, are we going to have uh, play acting? I think we are. Oh, yes. Okay. I'd go out there often and find things, fossils, rocks. I looked around for about half an hour, and, well, then I saw it. What May saw was a 75-pound object, he claimed, is the fossilized head of a Bigfoot. The Bigfoot, known to some as Sasquatch, his fabled ape-like creature, has been spotted hundreds of times in the northwestern United States. Living in a hot spot for Bigfoot sightings, May said he had been interested in the mythological creature all his life. In the past few years, he claims to have seen at least two different creatures that he believes are Bigfoots. The first time I saw one, I was startled. <laughs> it looked like an ape from the zoo. Wait, how would it sound exactly if he was startled? <laughs> he said, The creature appeared out of nowhere and then ran off for a few seconds after the man and creature made eye contact, he said. After the first spotting of Bigfoot, May had started visiting Ogden Canyon area more, hoping for another glimpse. He would visit a hot springs in the area and often felt someone or something pegging him with rocks. <laughs> I just thought it was kids, but then my friend was playing her flute. wonder what kind of flute that was. What? Outside and had a couple of witnesses who saw the Bigfoot, May said. The red-furred one was a lot bigger and it spooked me more. red fern. May said of the second creature he spotted about a year later. <laughs> it was nighttime and May was walking through the wilderness with a flashlight. I heard across the river someone say, Oh my God, it's a monster. He flashed his light around and the beam fell upon the face of an eight to ten foot tall red furred ape-like creature. He, it was about <laughs> twenty feet away, he estimates. It stared at him and then slowly walked off. A couple months later, May saw the same area and spotted what appeared to be a handprint on top of a rounded surface. Ooh. He dug the large object out of the surrounding dirt and saw a familiar face. Wait, he saw a handprint? He saw a handprint in some dirt, dug around it, and then he found a face. Okay, then. It had the same facial structure as the creatures I had seen, he said. <laughs> Since finding the object in 2013, May said he's had hundreds of people weigh in on their opinion about his finding. There's haters out there, other Bigfoot enthusiasts that don't like what I found and something first, May said. People have noticed the opinion of a Utah professor when the story first appeared who said the object was just a rock. But that professor just saw the picture that was in the paper. He never saw it in person. When you actually see it, you can't help but see its face, May said. Midwestern State University Assistant Professor Jesse Carlucci Kimball uh, from the Kimball School of Geoscience said after viewing the object that it was out, without a doubt just a highly weathered rock. Often the natural fractures or joints in the rocks are sites of increased weathering, chemical breakdown of the rock as they interact with rainwater where you have these types of depressions form. It's not Bigfoot, he said. Fossil skulls, the professor said, are extremely fragile and are made of bone, which has been, which has a very different texture and composition than a rock like this. May is still on the road with his foot finding. However, to get the word out to whoever will listen, the world is more mysterious than we could ever know. He, he was stopped by the Times Record News, unannounced Thursday morning, one head on his shoulder and another in a storage bin. I don't know where I'm going next, but people need to see this and know Bigfoot's is real. And they are out there. So... Mm -hmm. The two most impressive things of that story for me, Chad, yes, sir, are one that if it's seventy-five pounds, the picture of him holding it, he he acts he's, like it weighs like about I wouldn't maybe a pound. Up, I wouldn't want to upset him if I told him it wasn't real. I mean, he's hoisting he, that seventy-five pound rock skull. He is around like it's nothing. He's pretty darn strong. The other thing that's impressive is how uncanny the the resemblance between his voice and Ernest T. Bass from uh, the Andy Griffith Show is. Well. 
I'm not going to say there aren't people in this world that don't sound alike. Chris. What was his name? Todd. It was Todd. Todd. May. So I wonder if he goes around going, "Hello, hello to you and you. It's me. It's me. It's Todd May." <laughs> he probably does. Chad, what you you see the picture of the old skull in question? What do you, what do you make of it? I mean, if I didn't know it was a rock, I'd say it was a potato. It, um, <laughs> the world's largest potato. <laughs> it does look like there's a brow ridge. It does look like there's a little dimple that you could say, oh, this is his nose. And underneath there's a little spot you could say, oh, this is the eye. But it's a it's a rock. You could yeah. also say it looks like a newer rock, poorly cut out Stormtrooper helmet. So, Bigfoot skull in Utah. Yeah. In Utah. Bigfoot's a Mormon. He's in Utah. You know what happened? It was Brigham Young had him done in. Really? Yes. I, uh, yeah. That's what I'm going with. Okay. Well, I think, once again, you should write these things down and <laughs> get them published. How Brigham Young was the downfall of Sasquatch. <laughs> That's true. I'm going to get you a little book and a pen, and as we said here, I just want you to just scribble down ideas that pop into your head. It'd be like, what was the uh, thing they used to do on Saturday Night Live? reflections with jack handy or whatever it was <laughs> bigfoot is a jedi that's why you never find his body when he dies that's right well chad i've got one more new story here oh we'll kick into the story and this one's kind of kind of a sad story but at the same time i think it goes a long way into uh proving why you there are rules for reasons rules for reasons or reasons for rules or both hmm Man's death shows the enticing beauty and deadly power of Yellowstone's colorful hot springs. Hmm. This has been all over the news the past week or two, so I think you've probably heard it, but here we go. Colin Scott and his sister, Sable, came Tuesday for the Mesmerizing Hot Springs, a favorite sightseeing stop for millions of tourists each year at Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, where mineral deposits tint crystal clear pools of steaming water, brilliant shades of blue, green, orange, and yellow. The siblings from Oregon were exploring the Norris Geyser Basin, officials said, the park's oldest and hottest thermal area, when they deviated from the boardwalk that hovers safely above ground and took their adventure off course. They walked 225 yards away from the boardwalk and into an isolated area, officials said, only a thin, feeble crust of earth separating their feet from the acidic water bubbling beneath. Then, somehow, Colin Scott slipped, and as his sister watched, the 23-year-old tumbled into one of the boiling springs. Despite her immediate call for help and the prolonged search efforts by park staff, her brother was never seen again. His flip-flops, reported NBC News, were one of the few things rescuers retrieved. Wow. They halted their recovery mission Wednesday, park spokeswoman Carissa Reed told the Associated Press, due to the extreme nature and futility of it all. The water was highly acidic, Reed said, leaving no remains left to recover. Yellowstone's all-inspiring hot springs have claimed 22 lives since 1980, park officials told the Associated Press, but Scott's was the first thermal-related death in 16 years. More than bear maulings or cliff falls, being burnt alive in a hot spring is perhaps the most horrifying way to die in Yellowstone. For those who aren't killed immediately, death can come slowly, hours, days, or even weeks after the initial burns. It's devastating, park ranger Jessica Corhut told NBC Montana, not only to the families that are involved, but also the folks that have to go in and rescue them. Yellowstone has more than 10,000 thermal features, including geysers, hot springs, mud pots, and steam vents, according to the park's website. The hottest exist in the Norris Geyser Basin, where Scott died and where most of the features bubble well over the boiling point of 199 degrees Fahrenheit. The elevation slightly reduces the boiling point. It was there that the record high temperature for any geothermal area in Yellowstone was recorded inside a scientific drill hole at a piping 459 degrees Fahrenheit. Signs litter such areas throughout the park, warning visitors to remain on the boardwalks and keep pets away. Yet there's something about the Technicolor Springs that lures otherwise rational observers toward their magnetic depths. They've killed or injured more people in Yellowstone than any other natural feature. The last recorded thermal-related death was in 2000, when 20-year-old Sarah Sarah Holfers 
accidentally plunged into a hot spring with two friends as they walked through the park at night. Holfers, a summer park employee, died 15 hours after she and the two friends were pulled from Cavern Spring, a 178-degree pool about 10 feet deep. After her death, some people called on Yellowstone to post more signage throughout the park, warning of the lurking dangers. But park officials said there is some behavior that signs can't prevent. Newspaper editorials, environmentalists, and park employees have long beaten the safety drum, constantly reminding the millions of visitors that pass through each year to be mindful of the power of nature. Scott's death was the second thermal-related incident of the 2016 park season, officials said. On June 6th, a father and son suffered burns when they walked off the designated trail in the Upper Geyser Basin. We extend our sympathy to the Scott family, Superintendent Dan Wink said in a park statement. This tragic event must remind us all to follow the regulations and stay on boardwalks when visiting Yellowstone's geyser basins. So, it's sad. He died. But, stay on the path. I mean, you know what a hot spring is. It's hot. It's water. It's it's not going to end well for you if you fall. You know what I found amazing out of this entire story? Does flip-flops survive? Flip-flops are acid-proof. Apparently. That's But that's another thing of the story. You're in Yellowstone. You're wandering around looking at geysers, looking at hot springs. You're wearing a pair of flip-flops and decide to go nature hiking over who knows what. Yeah, that's... Mm. Yeah, but that's one of those. It, it is sad, but at the same time, you gotta think. You kind of brought that on yourself there, buddy. Remember the day we were talking about if you go swimming in the ocean where there's sharks and then somebody gets bit. It's not the shark's fault. <laughs> the shark didn't really do anything. Um, you kind of went in there and was like flopping around and looking like a sandwich. Well, and I think the one park official that said, to paraphrase, no matter, no matter how much signage you put, it's not going to work, which is true. I mean, you... Short of encasing the walkways in plexiglass mm-hmm. with a moving walkway in it, you're, you're not going to get some, you know, foolhardy person out there going, I'm going to go look closer to boiling water. Yeah, it won't hurt. In my flip-flops. Why the heck are you hiking in Yellowstone in flip-flops? Chris, it always amazes me some of the things that people get killed trying to do. Uh, coming up after our break... We're going to uh, start talking about a very interesting little thing that I just uh, found out more information on while I started researching the original show topic. Ooh, really? Yes. So when we come back, atmospheric beasts. Oh. Welcome back, everybody, and as uh, we alluded to before the little break there, today we're going to talk about atmospheric beasts. Originally, uh, Chad had, uh, said, let's do the show on just flying cryptids in general, mm-hmm. and the more I got to looking at some of the topics for that, I said, hey, let's just turn it into atmospheric beasts, because it seems pretty interesting. Sounds very interesting. So, uh, to start out the uh, story, or the topic... We should go back to where it potentially all started. Chad, let's get back. In, let's get in our wayback machine again. All right, and we need to go back to September fifth of eighteen ninety one. Me, you, and Charlie Murphy, Woo! Sherman and Peabody. Uh, We're going to Crawfordsville, Indiana. Crawfordsville. Yes, 
the most celebrated real-life encounter involving an alleged atmospheric monster hailed from Crawfordsville, Indiana. Hmm. According to the account published in the September 5, 1891 edition of the Indianapolis Journal, at about 2 a.m. on September 4th, two men were repairing a wagon when they looked skyward and were shocked to see what they described as a horrible apparition soaring above them. Horrible. The men asserted that the multi-finned, rectangular, headless creature swam no less than a hundred feet above them, and they gauged its size to be approximately eight feet wide and twenty feet in length. The men would later confirm to reporters that the beast was definitely animate. The men watched in horror as the creature propelled itself through the heavens with its numerous fins and even circled above a nearby home. The monster then vanished as it traveled eastward, only to reappear moments later. This was about all the eyewitnesses could take, and the men chose this moment to abandon their repairs and flee for their lives. This utterly bizarre creature would be easy enough to dismiss as a drunken hallucination or an outright hoax, were it not for the corroboration of another eyewitness with an impeccable reputation. The witness in question was one Reverend G.W. Switzer, a local Methodist pastor who, along with his wife, also claimed to see the sky beast. As if that weren't enough, the following night, the thing returned, but this time it did not show itself to a handful of stranded observers. According to reports published by the Indianapolis Journal, hundreds of witnesses testified that they watched the anomalous airborne entity fiercely flapping in the night sky. Hmm, it's easy to say. Observers described the an identical beast to the one seen the night before, but this time they noticed a cycloptic flaming red eye. They also noted that the writhing beast emitted a wheezing plaintive noise and squirmed in agony. The Crawfordsville creature undulated above the throngs of awed onlookers at a height of about 300 feet until it abruptly plummeted earthward toward a group of spectators. Those who narrowly avoided the apparent attack of the beast swore they could feel its hot breath as it rushed past them. Early paranormal chronicler and author Charles Fort was convinced that there was no reverend G.W. Schweitzer, and that the entire event was a hoax, but once he looked into the matter, he was shocked to discover that the pastor not only existed, but he confirmed his previous testimony to be true. Reporter Vincent Gaddis picked up on the story from there, and after interviewing dozens of eyewitnesses involved with the mass sighting, he wrote that all the reports refer to this object as a living thing. What that story doesn't go on to say, Chad, which is sort of sad, yeah. was e the next night or a night or two afterwards, a couple of men saw it again in the sky and uh -huh. decided to follow it until morning. When when morning got there, they realized that their flying crazy monster was actually a flock of birds. Really? Right. Uh bird in question is a killdeer, which is brownish on top with white underbelly and underwings. It was said that the town had just got... Uh, electric lights installed and the, the theory is that the electric lights kind of messed with the birds and they had a mass flocking kind of instinct and just flew together and that's what people saw so before they thought it was a giant mutated flying sea monkey with a glowing red eye yes and then it just ended up being a flock of flock birds. of i wish it had been a flock of seagulls me too but but it could have been because they ran <laughs> so they far did, away they did run so far away and i ran I run so far away. We couldn't get away. <clears throat> anyway. Mm -hmm. So, yes, that that was kind of the first story you can really find about any kind of flying anomalous air beast monster critter is what they refer to it in the books. But it turned out to be a hoax. But that's not the only one, Chad. Yeah. I have another one here from Richmond, Indiana. Richmond. Which, this one goes on kind of a more traditional atmospheric beast morphology. And this one actually comes to us from Phantoms and Monsters. We do enjoy Phantoms and Monsters. We do. We have an ad on Phantoms and Monsters now. Oh. They're the best crypt, uh, cryptozoology uh, paranormal site in the world. Uh, it's a story that was submitted to the aforementioned Phantoms and Monsters. This is very hard for me to publicly write about. It was so, so strange, and I have only told a few people because they just think you are crazy. When you tell them you saw a stingray fly over the street from one bunch of trees to another. I mean, we are in Indiana. Nowhere near the ocean for one thing, but even if we lived by the ocean, why would a stingray fly into the trees? 
Unless they were full of delicious apples. Well, he didn't say that. I don't know. Anyway, this is what I saw on my way to work one early fall morning around 6.30 a.m. Still not all the way light out, but light enough. Plus, there are street lights up and down the way I drive to work. I'm coming up to a four-way stop. No cars around, so I go. I'm looking downhill, kind of, following the street and seeing no cars. I kind of glance up a bit and see this huge stingray-looking thing fly from one side of the street. Kind of like out of a group of trees and going over the street into another group of treetops. I was astonished is the only word I could think of to describe it. Never had much of a reason to use that word, but it sums it up. I was like, OMG, OMG. Well, I started praying, Lord, what was that? It was so weird, I felt like I wanted to cry. I was kind of afraid. Many emotions ran through me after the initial astonishment. I kept asking myself, did I really just see what I saw over and over all the way to work? I kept thinking, okay, did that just happen? Well, for days I could not stop thinking about it, so I told a couple of people that they, and they don't believe me. I know. Well, I started to look at pictures on the internet to see what I might compare it to, and I came across this huge manta ray picture, and underneath it says Devil Ray. So then I look up on the internet some things about demonic creatures slash stingrays, and I come up with this whole bunch of stuff about water spirits. So that is what I really think it was. The location was in Richmond, Indiana, between South 16th and East East Streets and South 12th and East Streets overhead. I was driving west on East Street. It was grayish, shark-like, gray on top and whiter on the bottom, but it looked just like a giant stingray gliding over the street. We lived in Florida for years, and there are a lot of petting places that have starfish, sharks, turtles, and stingrays, so I've seen these things up close. It's hard to explain, but you know how the edges of a stingray-like wave as it glides through water. Well, the edges of it were doing the same thing, but through the air. I barely saw the long tail thing from the back as I watched the edges of it wave and glide. So, that one was in Richmond, Indiana. Weird. And... It kind of turns out that the ray-shaped atmospheric beast is kind of one of the more prominent ones. Huh. The, uh, it seems that uh, there are three forms to what they mostly are. They've been described as what looks like a just a large flying whale, a flying stingray or manta ray, or jellyfish. Those are your three main types. Now, the flying whale one is less, you know, it's not reported as much. Okay. But mainly the flying ray and the jellyfish. So, we've got all these sea creatures that are just <laughs> wandering around the sky. Sea monkeys. I honestly did not know that many sea animal-like apparitions were uh, floating around there. Now, did they say if anybody actually came in physical contact with them, or did they just see them? Uh, one of the things I read, now it didn't say how often this happens, but it did say that anyone that has touched one or came in contact one, with one said that it felt like they were being licked by a gigantic tongue. Really? Right. Hmm. For a more general overview of what they are, uh, if you go over to Cryptid Zoo, they have a very nice article on atmospheric beasts, and I'll just kind of do a brief synopsis of that. Uh, says atmospheric beasts are the strangest of the flying monsters from cryptozoology. According to eyewitness reports, they are things that seem like living creatures, but they break all the usual rules that we apply to living things. They fly without the need for wings, and their bodies are only semi-solid, often partially invisible to boot. Many atmospheric beast sightings were originally classified as really unusual UFO reports. Uh, noted Bigfoot author Ivan T. Sanderson devoted an entire book to the theory that many UFOs are actually extremely low-density animals native to the clouds. One of the most famous atmospheric beasts is the Crawfordsville Monster sighted in Indiana in 1891, which some researchers classified as a dragon, but we know that it's flock of birds. birds. <laughs> For those who believe, atmospheric beasts are very fragile and lightweight creatures who are either native to Earth or aliens that come from elsewhere. If the latter view is taken, then atmospheric beasts are sometimes thought to have originated in the atmosphere of some other planet. 
but they can also be thought of as originating originating in interstellar gas clouds so that they are, in effect, aliens without a native planet, able to swim through space. Believers generally consider atmospheric beasts to be non-intelligent so that even if these creatures did originate somewhere other than Earth, they still don't count as sentient extraterrestrials. They're just animals. In various eyewitness accounts, atmospheric beasts can change their density, becoming smaller, harder masses that are usually metallic in color, or they can become larger and cloud-like, even to the point of invisibility. In some reports, they may glow. Atmospheric beasts may roughly resemble whales and are sometimes called air whales or cloud beasts. Believers think that the atmospheric beast's normal habitat is high in the air, and they may die if they ever touch the ground. Because some of the stories uh, that I read, too, have you ever heard of star jelly? No. It is, apparently, uh, it turns up quite a lot after meteor showers. Have it's... a warming sensation? No. Oh. <laughs> and you can't put it on toast. Oh. Okay. Or, I mean, maybe. I don't know if anybody's tried to put it on toast. Okay. Maybe the next step in human evolution. Sure, but anyway, yeah. it's this just goo kind of stuff that is found on the ground or on trees quite a bit after meteor storms. Mm-hmm. And what some people theorize is that that's the remnants of one of these atmospheric beasts that gets hit by a meteor as it goes through the atmosphere, and then it falls to Earth. So, like, if I'm driving down, say, I-65 at about 80 miles an hour, and all of a sudden something smacks on the windshield and it's covered with slime, I could have hit an atmospheric beast. Uh, atmospheric beast or slimer. Uh, uh, I think one of those two. Huh. Now, what if? <laughs> oh, no. What if? Yes. It's a evolved race of creatures that lived in the ocean or aliens that have come here and resided in the ocean and they build ships that look <laughs> like biological creatures from the environment in which they live in. Well, that that's another one of the theories of, you know, is it alien? Is it just something that lives in our atmosphere? Is it something that lives in our ocean? But one of the other theories is that they're actually biological engineered UFOs. See? Which would make sense. We were talking before the show, uh, you know, the new hotness in computers and everything is trying to incorporate organics into them, make it faster and everything. So if you have an alien race that's so far advanced than us, who's to say they haven't went a step further and used organics to make ships? This is true. I don't see any reason why that couldn't happen. No. And then, I mean, then your ship would almost be like your pet, too. Yeah. You can name it Frisky. It'd be funny if you had a ship that pooped. <laughs> well, my, my exa- ship ships exhaust on your car. just kind of poop. Your car poops carbon monoxide. They just wash their car. <laughs> We're going to by. Hey, yeah. maybe, Chad. Put this down in my little journal of Chris's ideas. Uh huh. Chemtrails. Maybe chemtrails are biologically engineered alien spacecraft pooping. Farts. Fart could be farts. Could it be the farts? Because it's warm and they're in the atmosphere so it condenses when they fart. That's and they're right. aliens, so that's why when you hear the reports of like there being boron or not boron, but barium and things like that in mm-hmm. them. Hey, it's alien ship pooping. Ship propellant. That's right. So the gassy <laughs> alien ship monsters. You know. Because hmm. what do you feed it? Alien ship. BP. BP pure. 93 octane. That's what they take. Gasoline, yeah. That way it keeps them from knocking. Well, and you know, another another interesting thing that I found when I was uh, looking up stuff on these guys was they also have a tendency to be more prevalent, or not really prevalent, but more reports of them around earthquakes. Really? Right. Another little snippet here I uh, printed out is about the tsunami disaster in Japan from March 11th of 2011. Yeah. It says, The thing is that earthquakes and tsunamis influence more than just the earth and the seas. When the powerful earthquake hit Japan, it not only jolted the earth, but also shook the skies above. When earthquakes and tsunamis occur, they generate surface motion that is in, that in turn can trigger waves that can shoot up all the way to the highest parts of the atmosphere, to what is known as the ionosphere. These events are known as seismotraveling ionospheric disturbances. 
Hmm. Big sciencey words. They were. Recent research done in Japan has shown that the March 11th earthquake generated the largest such atmospheric disturbance ever recorded. It was an estimated three times more powerful than the next largest, which was recorded during, during the 2004 Sumatran earthquake. The March 11th disturbance created waves of large amounts of electrically charged particles traveling 450 to 500 miles per hour that reached up to about 220 miles above the Earth. One effect of these disturbances is their ability to disrupt radios and other radio and other signals, which is in fact one of the ways scientists use to measure them. If atmospheric beasts do exist high above us, and if in fact they do use some sort of navigation system that can be disrupted by things such as radar, then what might such a large earthquake-induced atmospheric disturbance do to them? It should be noted that the March 11th Japanese earthquake and tsunami was not the only such disaster to be accompanied by a rash of sightings of strange things in the sky. The second largest such atmospheric disturbance, the Sumatran earthquake and tsunami of 2004, also was accompanied by a large amount of UFO and other atmospheric sightings. So right there, that would lead you to believe that they're not alien. They're just weird they're just, critters that live in our atmosphere. They just tool around up in the skies. Right. It's like you have, uh, you have the manta ray. You have the jellyfish. Je- jellyfish. You have the whale. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have Falcor. Falcor. He, you have the wish dragon. Mm-hmm. Yes. You have the uh, skill of the, say, toad. You have the snake, the scorpion, uh, the centipede. Do you have? Do they? Do they all have kung fu skills? I think they do have kung fu skills. Wow, because I don't think you need to list all seven deadly. There's only five. Oh, sorry, five yeah. deadly masks of five deadly venoms. kung fu snake venom. Uh huh. So yeah, Chad, uh, one of those kind of odd paranormal things that i didn't really know about until i started digging some more and it turns out it's really interesting because it's another one of those there's reports all over pretty much all over the world about them this is exactly why we need a drone so we can look for atmospheric so beasts. we can look for atmospheric beasts bigfoot what what if the atmospheric beast attacked your drone what are they going to do to it get their atmospheric beast juice all over it <laughs> ew big deal if they got their atmospheric beast juice on it and we could actually recover the drone, could we sell that? Probably. I mean, it's got to have some kind of healing properties or... Drone assaulted cure. by atmospheric beast juice. Cures impotence. I mean, it's got to have some use. I'm sure somebody would want it. Cures warts. Yeah. So, <laughs> anybody out there listening, if you'd like to send us the DJI Phantom 3 quadcopter with the 4k or 1080p camera you even know the model number yeah that's so sad we'll uh utilize that in some of our paranormal guy videos uh so yeah hey my oldest did just get a uh little gopro type deal for her kindergarten graduation so i'm sure we could strong armor into letting us have that to use yeah it's not going to be the same if we like tape that to a bottle rocket we could it'd have to be a big bottle rocket well, I mean, it's all legal now. Explosives. There are no illegal fireworks. You won't understand anymore. Explosives make me happy. Mm, that's not a good sign. Well, I mean, they got to be colorful and go up in the sky. I mean, I don't want them to blow up anything. Oh, okay. Unless it would be an atmospheric beast, and then it, we could get some of that awesome star jelly. I wonder what they would taste like barbecued. Barbecue star jelly? <laughs> no, atmospheric beasts. Oh. I don't know if you could barbecue them, could you? Because everything says... Now, I wonder. They say they can change density and everything, apparently. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you kill it, does it automatically revert to either like almost invisible or the touchable hard guy? It's or probably like ghost shrimp. Is it however you kill it, that's what it stays You know like. how like a ghost shrimp, you can see through it, but the minute it dies, it looks like a little cocktail shrimp? Yeah. It starts turning pink. So you're saying if you could kill one, even if it was in its almost transparent form, uh-huh. Then it would just revert down to like meat, yeah, or goo, probably. I don't know. Uh, you have to. We could market that too. I it never happened with me though. I won't even go out and try any mushrooms I'm not familiar with, and you know they're growing around. Oh, so. You had that. You had that bad incident back in the '80s. That's true. That's a trip <laughs> you can't get back. 
Oh, so atmospheric beasts. We have the meats. I'm sorry, the beasts. On a side note, talking about barbecuing atmospheric beasts, Chad. Yeah. I see a new direction for paranormal guys. Really? I say instead of doing a podcast, we we could still do the podcast incorporated with this, but mm-hmm. we go out and we start catching cryptids and offering up the tasty meat. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I think it's already been tried in the past. Who wouldn't want to have a barbecue once, like Fourth of July, with all their friends and go, "Hey, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm I'm serving uh, some Sasquatch today." Mm-hmm. That would be impressive. Or even better, yeah, like this is Nessie. There's only one. So, what about people that are vegetarian? Green, green man. Just give them like a single ear of corn. It's a unicorn. Uh, proud of yourself aren't you <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny i enjoyed that one but i wonder if there's a market for uh cryptid meat that i don't know because you you know on think geek you can get like what looks like a can of spam that's labeled as unicorn meat that's true so i wonder if we could start a venture where we just get spam and label it as different things like chupacabra burger why not i think it'd be delicious well chad i think that brings us to the close of another fun-filled episode of paranormal guys hope it brought everybody a little more atmosphere to their evening yes hey we still have a we still have those uh very awesome paranormal guys decals out there that if anybody would like one just drop us a quick note at pongpodcast.com which is our website address if you want to email us i would actually use pongpodcast at gmail.com yes and actually, our website's in paranormalguys.com. So disregard anything I just said. And if you would like one of those way cool decals, send us an email at pongpodcast at gmail.com. Hopefully they'll arrive uh, when you request them because apparently <laughs> Chris is having a lot of problems. Letters and words are hard. Check out the uh, website. Uh, the interview that I did with the Creature Replica guys is on there. I heard you listen to it. It's And copyright uh, infringement free. Yeah, that's right. It's infringement free. <laughs> And uh, got anything else, Chris? Uh, no, just, hey, for any kind of quick news or anything, to stay updated with us, like our Facebook page. Go to our website at paronormalguys.com. You can, uh, that's where we update our news. That's where you can find out how to donate to the show to get Chad some new uh, earphones or that uh, drone so we can start hunting down uh, atmospheric beasts to make the uh, line of paranormal guys barbecued uh, flying manta rays. Nice. I'd lean more towards the drone than the headphones. <laughs> and as always, you can submit your email straight from the site to tell Chad uh, some stories. I do love the stories. As always, the music for Paranormal Guys is from Eye of the Storm by William Blanchard as well as the uh, music Over the Break. Awesome. And Chad? Yes, Chris. I know what's become your favorite part of the show. (sighs) Yep, it sure is. Hope everybody enjoyed it. And? Would you like to say it, Chad? No. Oh. It's okay. It's all yours. So thanks for listening, everybody, and have a paranormal weeks. Weeks.